Well, good morning. I want to welcome you again to our online service. Thank you for joining us, however you are joining us this morning, whether it be on our podcast, on SoundCloud or Spotify, YouTube, or on our online.church. Thank you for taking time out of your schedule, out of your day, to join us as we go into God's Word. We are finishing up our series, All In. This is the fourth message in this series. If you've missed any of the other uh, uh, messages in this series, I encourage you to go to our YouTube channel at youtube.com backslash South Suburban Christian Church or to our webpage at southsuburban.com where you can uh, download or listen to the podcasts of the previous messages there. This message is the culmination of our All In series. It is intended to look forward to where God is calling us. I'm going to be reading today from the book of Deuteronomy, which is in your Old Testament, Genesis, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's the uh, fifth book of the Pentateuch, which means five writings or five laws or the five books of the law. And I'm going to be reading uh, first in chapter one of Deuteronomy, beginning in the 28th verse. Uh, No, I'm sorry, the uh, 20, yeah, the 28th verse. Where are we going up? The people asked Moses. Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of Anakim there. Then I said to you, Do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness, where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you, as a man carries his son, all the way you went until you came to this place. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God, who went before you in the way to seek you out and place you and to pitch your tents in fire by night and in the cloud by day to show you by what way you should go. Here ends the reading of God's holy and perfect word. May he add his blessings and his understanding to it. Amen. When I was a kid, Saturdays in my family really probably had another name, a name that I've sought to carry on with my own children. It wasn't Saturday, it was Dadder Day. Every Dadder Day, my dad and I would take off out of the house for adventures unknown to explore things. Looking back on it now as an adult, it was normal kinds of stuff, boring kinds of stuff. We'd go get a haircut at the, at the barber that was just behind uh, Hargis's Exxon. Uh, sometimes we'd drop the car off there at Hargis's so that uh, he could change the oil or rotate the tires. Other weekends, we'd drop by the Western Auto to pick up a, a new battery for Mom's car because she accidentally left the headlights on again. Or sometimes we would just drive in the country roads over to the bay, uh, sometimes to watch the sunrise, other times to watch the sunset together as father and son. Every Saturday, I would hear this question from my dad as a young child. Son, you want to go with me? And as a young child, I gleefully said yes, and I'd run and get my shoes and my coat if necessary, and I'd spend the day with my father. But we all grow up, don't we? And we hit those uh, teenage years, and dad would still say, son, you want to go with me? And I would, with that teenage draw, that 
sense of uninterest. Well, where are you going? (laughs) Well, I never really knew how much that phrase hurt until my own son started saying it to me when I would ask him, son, you want to go with me? You know, in verse 28, as we are reading in Deuteronomy, Moses recounts what the Hebrews had said. The Hebrews had said to Moses and to God, where are we going up? Where are we going? It reminds me of those conversations with my own father, especially as in Hebrews in verse 31, when Moses says, where you have seen how the Lord your God carries you as a man carries his son. Where are you going? Seems like a relatively common enough phrase, I think. And yet, it is only used twice in the entirety of your scriptures. The first time's here, right in Deuteronomy chapter 1. The second time is in John 13, verse 36, when Peter asks Jesus where he's going, trying to unpack what Jesus is talking about with regard to the resurrection and coming back to receive us again to himself. There's another exchange in the New Testament a little bit later in John chapter 14, 5, but it's not a question like Peter asked. It's more of a statement when Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you are going. Tell me about it. (laughs) Today is the last day of our All In series. Thus far in our series, we've explored why God chose to call us, why we have been chosen to be all in, why Jesus declared that we are salt and light. In message two, we looked at our all-in-ness and how it begins, that it begins in the heart and our minds being transformed. And last week, we explored the strongholds that the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that we are to dismantle. And today, we conclude this particular series, and we find ourselves in a similar situation just like those Hebrews did in Deuteronomy chapter 1. The first point that I want to share with you in all seriousness and soberness is I believe that the church of Jesus Christ, and yes, even South Suburban Christian Church, we are on the cusp of what will be the church's greatest challenge in 500 years. I know, that's a pretty bold declaration to make, isn't it? It is ironic that October 31st, well, not only is October 31st All Hallows Eve, or Halloween as our culture understands it, the day before All Saints Day, when the church celebrates the coming together of all of the saints and the good news of the resurrection, but it's also Reformation Day. It's the day that the church remembers that 503 years ago, the pastor and professor Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis on the wall, on the door of All Saints Chapel in Wittenberg, Germany. Luther's actions set the church on a collision course with the entire Western civilization. For a thousand years, the church was not just the harbinger of the gospel, but the manager of kings and queens, the arranger of powerful peace accords and declarations of war, and most importantly, trade deals that allowed for economic success throughout the known world, specifically Europe. The church had given birth to education, science, exploration, 
and for its day, modern health care. Now, I know, I know people say that the church was always the people fighting against those things. Historically, that's not true. The church funded those things. The church ensured that those things took place, and Western civilization continued to advance educationally, technologically, and in every way possible. Well, when one institution controls that much of human existence, whether it's the church or a modern-day government, you need two things. Number one, you need absolute control of your people. you got to keep everybody in line. And number two, you need a steady stream of income because all of that stuff costs money. The Roman Catholic Church was a vast organizational nightmare that benefited from two things that helped provide control of the people and a financial stream of income. Number one was a gospel of fear to keep their people in line. And number two, a selling of indulgences or the selling of forgiveness of sins in order to maintain the income needed to keep this huge administrative state, this behemoth, running. With the new message that Luther brought of salvation by grace through faith, the world began to change and with it the church changed as well. We often paint a glowing, romantic picture of what the church looked like under the revived teachings of Martin Luther and the Reformation, that the message of the gospel found in Scripture would suddenly liberate the entire world and people would just walk around with hands clasped, praying and singing hymns. But the truth was a little different. And Luther begrudgingly found himself doing the same things as a Protestant reformer than that he had done when he was a priest in the Augustinian order of the Roman Catholic Church. In the final days of his life, in 1546, he was summoned back to the town of his birth to negotiate a truce between two counts, or political figures, who were disputing a financial issue. Churches across Germany had begun to see attendance drop. Well, now church attendance didn't assure your place in heaven, And if you skipped church, you no longer went to hell, as the Roman church had been teaching. And so folks just began to slowly drift away. Politics, bribery, war, the using of the name of Christ to garner support among one's enemies. These things were the same things that he had been experiencing even in his younger days as a Roman priest. He was confident that his understanding of the gospel was faithful and Even when he was asked near the end of his life, would you stake your eternal soul on everything that you have been teaching? He said that he was steadfast, that he had learned to look away from himself, his sins, his guilt, and keep his eye of faith on the crucified Christ. But the business of the church still annoyed him. For the past 60 years, of our own experiences with the church in this nation, and probably even before that. The trajectory of the church in the United States has been in decline. Several years ago, it was projected that within 10 to 20 years, the church would be radically smaller, that mainline Christianity would effectively come to an end, that evangelical Christianity would be half the size in the coming decades, and that Roman Catholicism would be relegated to the global south continents like South America and Africa. But in the last 18 months, I'm sorry, in the last eight months, we have expedited that timeline, I think, tenfold. 
in the most recent surveys, about two-thirds of Christians in the United States have effectively stopped participating in online or in-person worship. Of the one-third that continue to watch online, 20% of them do not see themselves ever coming back to church even once the pandemic is over. Now here's the irony. When those same folks who are still involved in online worship like you are today or uh, in in in-person worship as some of you are attending, when they're asked the question outright, will you come back to church after the pandemic? 92% of them say that they will. And 35% of them say that they will also continue watching worship and educational aspects of the faith online. What does that mean? Particularly if you like math and you're trying to figure out how those percentages add up. Well, here's my prediction. And it's just me. However, I do try to base it on the uh, trends that I've read about, the articles, and trying to, to, to pull all of these voices together to make some sense of what is happening in our midst. My prediction is that it will be even worse for mainline churches. That evangelical churches will continue to decline. And after the pandemic is over, based on trends we're already seeing, 66,000 of the 330,000 churches that are in the United States will have closed permanently. I think 120 million self-identified Christians will no longer be active in the church at all. The church will effectively lose two-thirds of its participating members. But I also think that the 60 million Christians that will still be a part of the church will be all in. Now, before we get too upset, let me just say this, point two. We've been here before, and only fear will stop us again. Like the Hebrews in Deuteronomy, we find ourselves listening to the echo of history reaching to us today. The Hebrews had been on the border of the promised land a generation before Moses gives this speech in Deuteronomy chapter 1. However, the first time that they had arrived at the southwestern corner of the Dead Sea, looking over into the promised land, Moses reminded them in verse 21, which I didn't read to you today, but in verse 21, he says quite clearly, do not fear or be dismayed. Well, the people heard what he said, but they decided that what would be best would be to send spies into the land first, to, to scout everything out, to see what they were up against. And when the spies came back to the people, the witness reports terrified them. The land is filled with giants, the spies said, people who are greater and taller than we. We will never be able to stand a chance with them on the battlefield. Their cities are great and fortified, strongholds. Remember last week's message, if you will. That, that, that they literally reach up to the heavens itself. And to top it all off, the sons of Anakim, a race of ancient giants that filled the people with fear, filled also the land. If the normal-sized giants didn't kill us, the real giants will. 
And Moses says again to them in verse 29, Do not be in dread or afraid of them. Verse 30, The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt, before your eyes, and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you, as a man carries his son. All the way that you went until you came to this place. Son, you want to come with me? Well, where are you going, Dad? It doesn't matter, son. Do you want to go with me? Well, the Hebrews said, No, Dad, it's too scary. Translate it. Those giants in that land are too big, even for a God like you. But haven't I shown you that it is I who fight the battles, not you? You were slaves in Egypt without without any access to weapons or resources, and I redeemed you out of slavery. Don't you remember? When you found yourselves on the banks of the Red Sea, when the waters were on one side and a raging Egyptian army was bearing down on you from the other side. Wasn't it I who parted the sea? Wasn't it I who destroyed the army that salt your blood? When you were in the wilderness, a desert with no food or water, it was I that brought water from the rock. It was I who fed you each day with manna and brought you quail for meat. I have been before you as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Have you grown so used to my presence that you now think that I am as weak as you are? The generation before this generation in Deuteronomy chapter 1 allowed fear to overwhelm them. And they actually returned to the desert to wander for an entire generation. Now, these people are here in the same place. Will they make the same mistake? It isn't every generation that has a challenge or an opportunity present itself so poignantly that it can change the course of history. We've been here before. In 325 A.D., the Council of Nicaea preserved the orthodox faith that Jesus Christ is light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. Otherwise, Jesus would have been understood as not fully divine, and therefore without the authority to forgive sin or the ability to atone for them. In 540 A.D., with the establishment of the Benedictine rule by a man named Benedict of Nursia. As the world was descending into what would be 900 years of the Dark Ages, Benedict founded a congregation, or as they're known today, monasteries, where knowledge was preserved, where literature was kept, where the arts were developed, all of which would be used eventually to rebuild the culture in the late Middle Ages and into the Renaissance. This idea of congregations as communities, like monasteries, where the members shared a mutual commitment to one another, prayed together, studied together, and served the region together, that shouldn't be lost on us. 
Because we are congregational people. At the height of these dark ages in 1054 A.D., the schism between the East and the West occurred. And for the first time in history, the church is divided. It's broken. And it gave rise to the development of attitudes and egos that begin to fracture the church into sections, dividing the body of Christ, warring against the very prayer Jesus prayed. 1517, the Reformation, I've already talked some about that, a new light that took a century to get rolling. But once it had, it began to reach across the globe looking for a reprieve from persecution and giving rise to translations of the Scripture into the language of the everyday woman and man on the street. In 1832, the second great awakening from which our own Christian church movement emerged, a cry for unity, a cry for simplicity in the gospel message, a call back to Scripture of right belief, but also right action, a way of life. I'll come back to that in a minute. And now, 2020, decades from now, historians will look back, I think, at the pandemic of 2020. What will the church look like? Well, point three, the world may be changing, but the Word of God will stand forever. All of those moments in history that I mentioned to you just previously, the Council of Nicaea, the Benedictine Rule, the Great Second Awakening, all of them share things in common. A return to Scripture. A return to not Christian serve us, but Christian service. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever, Hebrews 13.8. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed, Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change, James 1.17. God is not a mortal that he should lie, or a child of a mortal that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Numbers 23.19. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For God cannot deny himself, 2 Timothy 2.13. And then echoing from last week's message, Paul writes a letter to the Ephesians and he says these words, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then verse 11, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature adulthood, to the measure of the statue, stature of the fullness of Christ, speaking the truth in love. Back to the Bible. 
Peter Senji is a senior lecturer at the MIT Sloan School of Management. He's the author of the book, The Fifth Discipline, one of the seminal works of management in the last century. I encourage you to read that book. Dr. Senji was invited to speak at a pastor's conference hosted by another famous Christian author, Brian McLaren. Dr. Senji mentioned in his opening remarks that in preparing for a speech, he found himself at a large bookstore. And so he decided to ask the manager of the bookstore, which books are the most popular these days? And the manager said, well, that's easy. It's that section over there that talks about how to get rich quick. We sell more of those books than any other book in this store. Dr. Senji said, that's not surprising. So what's the second most popular? The manager said that the second most popular books are books on spirituality but specifically Buddhist spirituality. When Brian McLaren, the host, asked Dr. Sinji why he thought this was, Sinji answered, I think it's because Buddhism presents itself as a way of life, and Christianity presents itself as a system of belief. So I would want to get Christian ministers thinking about how to rediscover their own faith as a way of life, because that's what people are searching for today. And that's what they need most. Like Benedict of Nursia, who called Christians together into congregations or community where we studied together, where we served together. Like like Luther, where even in the Great Reformation to rediscover the biblical truth of salvation by grace through faith, he still knew that the work of the gospel was to help people in conflict resolve their differences, that the gospel fit into everyday life. Like the great revivalists of that second great awakening who proclaimed that orthopraxy, that is right actions, were equally as important as orthodoxy, that is right belief. And here we are, church, on the border of a new landscape. God has called us to this border to be all in spiritually, intellectually, financially, emotionally, physically, all in. What is the future we are being called into? Hey, son, daughter, you want to go with me? Let's go with him. Like Paul said, in humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Hey, daughter, you want to go with me? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Hey, you want to go with me? Yes, Dad, we want to go with you. We know where you are leading us. You are leading us into your future. It is the battles that you will fight, and it is the victories that will be yours, so that all glory and honor and praise may be yours as well, our Father. 
I can't imagine anyone else that I would want to go forward into time with than you, Dad. Yes, we will go with you. Merciful God, the days and the weeks and the months ahead are filled with the unknown. The shadows of the cliffs that tower over us as we make our way through the valleys of this uncertainty are terrifying. But we know that you are not leading us to valleys, but through valleys to mountaintops, to clear and open plains of blessed land. Lord, as has happened in years past, when great renewal moments and revivals have occurred, let us return to your word. Let us make your word a part of our everyday life. May our faith not just be a part of our head, but in our hearts, our hands, and our feet. May we, O God, offer ourselves to you as you, yet again, offer yourself to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.